Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. Today, we're talking about Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor, and his meditations. And you might say, well, why are we doing that? Well, you know, we've, we've talked about Stoicism quite a lot on this show before, and so we'll be, you know, discussing some more things having to do with that. But there's a very special anniversary coming up that we're going to tell you about in just a minute. But before that, we want to throw a little quote at you that might seem a bit uncharacteristic. So, Dan, go ahead and take it away. So... The best revenge is to be unlike him who performed the injury. You know, this is from the person that is literally the most powerful person in the world and could easily be, you know, cavalier and say, well, like, well you know, someone slighted me, someone bumped into me. He could, like, have them immediately executed. He had absolute authority, and, and thus he is somehow humble enough to look at this and be like so grounded it is a very um unlikely thing especially if you kind of go along with the, the old adage of you know a power corrupts and right. absolute power corrupts absolutely how did this man who was the the literally could have his every whim catered to uh come out in this sort of mindset yeah and there were already examples of previous roman emperors who didn't withstand that corrosive tendency of power and some of them actually started out halfway decent but you know by the end they they were real they were real scumbags some of them right, right. and so yeah you're right aurelius he could have uh he could have gone the wrong way um, he could have gone bad. Now, we, we should mention that his his uh, successor and son um, didn't turn out so good. And, no. and that's something that people bring up a lot. But, you know, I mean, you look at kids and you look at parents, it's, it's often quite difficult to pass on precisely what you want. And I would imagine being an emperor would be even tougher in some ways. Yeah. And to like expand upon this, he often says something to the effect of like, soon you will be dead and none of this will matter. And, and that seems so out of character for what you think of extremely powerful people that usually have a pretty, you know, strong ego and, and focused the, on their legacy. Right. Yeah. Or, or just whatever's happening. Yeah. It's like, yeah, long-term or short-term. And, and this is, this is but a moment in time. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about why we're focusing on this guy. Um, we, when we were getting ready to, to start thinking this show out, you brought up Gladiator and I was like, yeah, I, I don't know if everybody out there these days even remembers that because movies age pretty quickly. But I think that for most people, if they do know Marcus Aurelius, it is from that movie where he he has a bit part, or not he does, but, you know, the, the character that's written into the script to portray him, right? Yeah, uh, just that, that little bit of pop culture is, I think it's, it does him a disservice. It, it doesn't really go into the character of the person. And, you know, you, if you're going to look at emperors in that movie, yeah. it's much more commodious than anyone else that you see as... That's position. true. I mean, what we get from the movie is, well, he was a decent guy and, you know, thought of everybody else, but that's about it. We don't see why that was the case mm -hmm. 
And, you know, you're right. Commodus gets to be the, the super villain for the movie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in ways that he wouldn't have been in ordinary life. I mean, he did like to oh. to gladiate, I suppose you can call it. But I don't think he had vendettas against Russell Crowe like characters carried out for years and years and years. So you know, Hollywood really likes to uh, mess around with things, don't they? But yeah. but that's that's why we should talk about who this guy was because that you know people might only have that impression. And we're going to talk about this book called typically The Meditations uh, that became a really important part of Stoic literature. And right now it's, it's kind of a hot commodity, right? Well, yeah. Well, specifically because of an upcoming anniversary. And there, this is going to be, what is it, the 1900th anniversary of his birthday coming up here on April 26th. And so this is one of the... the progenitors of the show of like why we're doing this today we're doing it a little bit early granted but we wanted to get ahead of the curve so we could announce some of the things that are coming up about aurelius but i will say too with the meditations there are you know hundreds of thousands of people buying it reading it talking about it and that's been going on for for quite a while i remember when i was at stoicon 2016 and ryan holiday was the um the plenary speaker and he was telling a bit of his story and i didn't actually know that much about his story because I'll, I'll i'll confess to you i don't actually read ryan holiday's books very much but um he was he was talking about having gotten a copy of the meditations when he was in college and reading his way through it and i think he had a much better experience than i did reading it in college because it like changed his life and then it, it you know drove him to like get interested in stoicism and he he rereads it you know frequently and i think there's a lot of people out there like that you know there's other important stoic texts but i don't i don't hear that many people saying yeah man i reread seneca's letters like once a month <laughs> you know <laughs> or epictetus's discourses um, whereas people do say that about the meditations i think part of it is that it's just it's got uh almost poetic quality to parts mm. of it um as well as it's one of those things that it's non-linear and thus um you can kind of just drop in any place that you want if you want to, like, just, I don't know, one of those readers or, or like, maybe yeah, uh, yeah. the Psalms or something along those lines of dropping in and just finding something that might be uh, useful or something to meditate upon yourself. That's a really interesting point that maybe its lack of systematicity is not a deficit on it, on its part, but rather a strength of the work, right? Yeah. And and it, it just happens to be like that. It's not like he set out to <laughs> right. do that. It was it was never even intended to be read by anyone. It was it was a personal journal for his own thoughts and his own you know philosophical practice. Yeah. And and by dearth of him being an emperor and people retaining his writings, do we have this little piece of uh, stoic practice? Yeah, and we're going to tell a little bit of that that story because it is kind of a crazy story uh, when we, we get down to it. So the the like with a couple other texts, I'm going to give you a little teaser about this. 
it survived in just a few manuscripts. And if those manuscripts had been lost, that would have been it. Like a lot, a lot of people don't know that like Beowulf um, only had, there were only two existing copies at one time, if I remember the story right. And if those had disappeared, that would have been it for that, that entire work of literature. And it's the same thing for, for this one. We should, we should shift gears a little bit and tell you a little bit about these events that are coming up. Uh, since yeah, that what's was... the ones that you are going to be participating in specifically? Well, I'm not in on the the biggest event, um, and I, I, let's talk about that one first. Okay. I, that that way I can uh, you know I can get to my my stuff a little bit later. So it's mostly the London people that are doing this because the Aurelius Foundation, which there's a whole foundation right named after this guy now, devoted to um, bringing Stoicism to younger people. The Aurelius Foundation and Modern Stoicism Organization are having this Marcus Aurelius anniversary conference on Sunday, April 25th. And it begins kind of early for, for us because it's it's on London time. But there's a lot of speakers and it looks like a really great lineup. Um, same day, there's the New Acropolis. Chicago is having a thing they're calling Roman Banquet, celebrating Marcus Aurelius's 1900 years of legacy. And I'll be presenting during that on Marcus Aurelius on anger. And then uh, Gilad will, will be presenting on, on some other features of Marcus Aurelius. And that's a little bit of a smaller event. Um, and then a little bit before that here in Milwaukee, um, we're putting on, that's when I say we, me and, and my wife and partner, Andy Shaka, we're going to be putting on a little thing about how to read Marcus Aurelius as a beginner. So, you know, what to look for, what to not allow to take you off course, you know, what questions naturally arise, all, all those sorts of things. That's more of a workshop than a talk where I'll be doing a lot of Q&A with, with people. So, and, you know, I, I actually did search and I didn't find anything else that was coming up. I don't know. Did you see anything else online about uh, other Marcus Aurelius events? Nothing specifically, nothing more than what you outlined here, but I bet that if anything else uh, drops in, then you can find it on the Stoicism Today blog. Maybe. Uh, I can't promise that. I, I would actually like look in Meetup or mm. in, in other things that have like groups. Um, maybe, maybe there'll be announcements that people haven't gotten out quite yet. Right. Well, I will say one other thing that's kind of cool, and I think it might be too late for people to get in on it. There was a poetry contest for people to write short, I think like 250 words or less poems that are themed around Marcus Aurelius. And some people submitted some limericks, and <laughs> things like that. But there were some other other entries. And I, I guess I'm not on the committee for that, but Modern Stoicism got quite a few really good entries. And so those are going to get, well, the, the top one is going to get read during the conference, mm. um, I think by the person who wrote it. And then um, some of the other really good ones we're going to publish in the, in the uh, Stoicism Today blog. So I, I think that, you know, that's, that's an idea I would have never come up with on my own, you know, mm -hmm. but it was a really cool idea. I think it it might've been John Sellers or it might've been Tim LeBon who came up with it, but whoever did, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant idea to get more people involved in, in doing this and doing it in a way that we wouldn't normally think about, you know, like philosophical treatises. That's one thing. Poetry, that's a whole, whole different animal. Right. You know, and, uh, Good luck to all of the uh, cunning linguists who are going to join us on that. Yeah. 
So what we're going to do today, the bulk of this show, other than the chatting that we've already been doing, is going to be talking about like insights and practices from Marcus Aurelius that, that you can use because the show is supposed to be about, you know, um, applying philosophy to, to everyday life. So this guy is a philosopher as well as a, a emperor. Um, but we're also going to talk about um, why Marcus and the meditations is important for modern stoicism, uh, who this guy was, uh, a bit more biography and, and context. Um, Dan and I each have a, a little story about how we got into the meditations and what we got out of it. I'm going to mention too, by the way, that Dan... Um, he brought what we call Stoic Walk and Talks here to Milwaukee from, was it the Fremont Stoa? Yeah. Yeah. In uh, California. And the first things that, that you were doing, if I remember right, was Marcus Aurelius's meditations, uh, reading portions of it and then walking along Lake Park. Is that um, right? It is, oh, uh, Lake Elizabeth. Okay. Oh, Lake Elizabeth uh, there or here? Oh, sorry. In California, it's Lake Elizabeth. Here, here yes, it's Lake, Lake Park. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was It was kind of cool to do. I'd never done anything like that before, but it's, you know, you, you walk along in this beautiful natural environment, something that Marcus was particularly attuned to and talk about stoicism and, and Marcus Aurelius and some passages. I thought it was a really cool thing to do. So we're going to, we're going to talk about how we got into it. And then we'll talk also about um, what the book is and a bit of its history, uh, a little teaser, you know, that I gave you of earlier. And then then we're going to jump into all those insights and practices. And we're going to, you know, just run through as many as we can. We're both a bit loquacious. So I don't know how many we'll actually get to. <laughs> uh, it's not getting through them. It's a journey, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. we could always, I suppose we could always pick up more down the line. You know, we could do a Marcus take two. Right. right. Well, we've got uh, April of next year, so. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, if we're still doing the show 100 years from now, then it will be the really big anniversary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It'll be two uh, heads and jars, right? <laughs> exactly. Like on Futurama. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so let, let's talk a little bit about um, modern stoicism and, and Marcus. And I think we probably... Um, should talk a little bit first about, well, what is Stoicism? Because we can't presume that everybody listening to this has listened to every single show or anything along those lines. So, you know, there's a a number of important ideas. What would you say are the most simple and straightforward ways of talking about what Stoicism is? Um, I'd say it is a a virtue ethic. Um, So uh, I I would call it foremost a... uh, Wow, um, a philosophy of uh, a moral philosophy, um, as well as a orientation towards the world in how you view it and how you are interacting with it, uh, which then has certain oughts that derive from the the values. And so, the, the, some of the the basic values are that uh, those things that are actually valuable are those things that we actually have full control over, and those in the stoic sense are really a very small subset of everything um it's not that we don't have influence over other things but there's only some things that we have total control over and those include our desires our aversions the the opposite of our desires and um our uh 
movement towards something and our movement away from something and uh, to a certain extent our thoughts or you know we also have some control over our emotions it's not as if we can like you know turn them on or off with a switch but i mean one of the things that is very liberating about stoicism is this realization that i don't i don't have to be angry i don't have to be sad i don't have to be fearful um although there could be you know the right amount of fear in some cases mm-hmm. um and and my thoughts lead to why i feel the way that i i do um, so uh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, there's a lot more to stoicism that we could talk about, but that's, that's a good thumbnail sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, now when we talk about this term, modern stoicism, something that, that Dan and I are both, you know, pretty closely involved in, we're talking about taking ancient stoicism, a, a, a philosophical school and trying to adapt it to, to modern life. So there's some things that end up kind of going by the wayside, you know, the notion that the whole universe is one vast, rational, well, you can't even call it creature because it didn't, cre- yeah. nobody created it, but, but that it's one, it's essentially like God's mind. I think most of us leave that aside. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, the fact that, or the not the fact, the, the thought that they had of like the universe going through cycles and everything burning up and then recomposing and, oh, and it happens right. over and over exactly the same way every time. That one's a tough one to stick with. I mean, there are some people who do believe that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but those are more the traditional Stoics. Um, and there's other aspects too where it's more culturally conditioned. Epictetus thought that if you were a man and you didn't have a beard, there was something wrong with you. Very, very insistent about, you know, traditional gender roles. I think we were probably a lot more flexible with those sorts of things. But, you know, um, stoicism is, is a lifestyle that's being practiced by people and it's also being studied, studied academically. Um, and, you know, we can talk about this revival that's been going on. I don't know, what would you say, about 25, 30 years? Uh, it's, it's been picking up more and more steam uh, in the last decade or so. Yeah, and I wanted to say something about this idea of Marcus Julius being a philosopher and how okay. people that are practitioners of like modern Stoicism um, would be considered philosophers in the more ancient context of the philosopher. And it's not like yeah, Marcus is sitting and writing treatises about how, you know, uh, from some certain beginning axioms yeah. to then uh, like come to some conclusion, he is uh, a practitioner of a certain set of values, um, which is called the philosophy. Uh, and and those people that are followers are then considered a philosopher in this context. Yeah, one of the definitions that you see in Stoic texts of philosophy is the art or the craft, the techne of living. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is that it's, I mean, there, there is a very intellectual side to it, not lots of theory. Oh, unfortunately, much of which has been lost because um, it would be kind of cool to look at it. But you don't, you don't absolutely need that stuff in order to live the philosophy out and to reap the benefits of it. Right. And you know, there are people that are currently doing the more you know, ivory tower-esque things of building uh, some of that, like, uh, text back out mm-hmm. you know like if you start from certain uh values or axioms that are kind of like the foundation of stoicism you can then apply these to larger and larger systems and see how these things would work under this particular set of uh, original vi- values 
Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll actually mention a few of my um, colleagues and, and friends who are doing that sort of thing, particularly in terms of the environment, which I think is, is really quite important. Um, one of them is Kai Whiting, who is a British guy who was in Portugal for a while, uh, does a lot of work on sustainability, along with his, his uh, friend and uh, co-author, um, Leo... Constantinus, I think. I'm, gonna, I'm sure I mangled his name. They have a new book out, um, by the way. And uh, Christopher Gill, uh, sort of the, the, you know, the grandfather of the modern Stoic movement in many ways. <laughs> or maybe it, has, maybe it has several, you know, Lawrence Becker uh, and uh, A. Long and uh, Julia Anas and, and a few others would be, you know, all grandparents together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, you know, Chris Gill is doing a lot of stuff on stoicism and environmentalism, and I think that's that's quite important um, mm-hmm. because you know we're we're thinking in a cosmic way about the place of humanity in in uh, the cosmos and trying not to wreck it <laughs> for right. humanity. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit more about this particular. Uh, guy in this this book. So Marcus's meditations are very popular. Um, they're read by a lot of people in stoic groups and on their own. Um, I think part of that is because he's a he's a bit of an easier read than say Epictetus's discourses or Seneca's letters or Cicero's texts. And we don't really have that many big books to choose from uh, for classic Stoicism. So Marcus is kind of at a I mean, would you say he's at a beginner level or like beginner intermediate? I, there's there's a lot of really deep stuff in there, but it yeah, a lot of it is really easy to at least pick up and understand, um, especially because they're they're often very very bite sized little bits of, of information or practice. And yeah, true. I think one of the things that is the most useful or most salient in the meditations is he is, describes a lot of. Uh, philosophical practices, whereas the others tend to be a little bit more, um, you know, theory, uh, like talk about it. But he's always like, okay, well, I need to do this. I need to wake up in the morning and I do this. I need to yeah, yeah. Uh, look at these things in this way. I need to, and it's it, it's very easy because it just gives it like lays out what he was supposed to be doing and how he should be orienting himself on everyday uh, experiences. You know, before we get into his biography, which I, I know you want to talk about a good bit, so is Marcus more relatable than Epictetus and Seneca in a way because he, he's addressing himself? I mean, Epictetus and Seneca are addressing people that we could like put ourselves into the place of, like Epictetus' students or Seneca's, the, the, whoever the letter's written to, usually Lucilius. Um, Marcus is talking directly to himself, and he's talking to himself as somebody who should be doing better, but is often screwing up. And you know, it's like, you know, when you talk to the person who's got potential and they're not living up to their potential, he's talking to himself that way. I mean, does that make it easier for the rest of us to kind of fit ourselves into that book? I think it. He's definitely goading himself to be better, but it's done with a little bit more kindness than when you see Epictetus, who loves to like you know call out people and say like you're a slave, and yeah, which is kind fool. of a full <laughs> slave. It's, it's a harsh, um, 
like kind of smack over the top of the head versus Marcus is like, this is, I really need to be doing this. And which I don't know, depending on the person, uh, that orientation might be a little bit easier to get into. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because somebody could say, oh, well, that's just because Epictetus was talking to his students. But when you read the discourses, no, he talks to everybody that way. He talks to a Roman procurator, which is, you know, like a pretty high level position. The guy comes in and he's complaining about a crowd not liking what he said. And, and Epictetus is basically saying, listen, dummy, you know, <laughs> to, to him, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't you why don't you uh, lead us through some of the um, important points of biography that you you thought were yeah. Um, so, like the big thing is, or here's the the last in line of what has been dubbed the five good emperors, and one of the things that made them the good emperors is that they weren't actually uh, the heretical children of the the previous emperor and so they had all been adopting promising well-adjusted individuals to succeed them and unfortunately for i guess the roman empire and the end of the pax romana Mm. um marcus did not continue on with that so if there's a a big black mark against him that might be one of the largest um and, but he was uh, adopted by Emperor uh, Antonius Pius, um, but he was uh, fathered by Marcus Aeneas Verus, um, and and he was like well known that he was taught philosophy from a very very young age. Um, he excelled at it, um, and he he often refer, refers to uh, the discourses, which he sometimes is referred to as like the memoir, um, yeah. and, and you can see him his orientation towards stoicism is very uh, aligned with like Epictetus's construction of how to teach stoicism with his three uh, disciplines of action, um, uh, uh, desire and acceptance. And to, uh, and and you can see that being, Expanding on in in the rest of the the, the meditations and how it is written as a lot of times is oriented towards these particular disciplines. Yeah. Uh, and but one of the like the things that like why he might have chosen um, his uh, son to be emperor instead of choosing a adopted child is that he had thirteen children with his wife, but uh, eight of them died before he did. And so he went through a lot of grief of like losing all these children yeah. and it might have created him uh, a position where he was a little bit more uh, attached to his children, which is kind of funny from a Stoke perspective, because that is one of the, the ideas is to not be super attached to those things that are physical in the world, that those are not the things that are the most, um, uh, good. They're they're not actually technically a good within the, the philosophy of Stoicism. They're preferred and different. Um, but you know, no one said that uh, Marcus Aurelius was a sage. He was just a practitioner, and we all try to aspire to a sage. Yeah. But very few of us, or none of us, will ever actually get there. Yeah. Um, you know. And, oh, oh, go ahead. I was well, just I mean, gonna add that uh, the meditations were written um, later on in his life, um, while he was on campaign, for the most part in his uh, mid fifties, and and so this is like a man who's like 
the book is written as someone who's seen a lot, who's seen a lot of his children die, who has spent a lot of his life on campaign, um, fighting against uh, people that would uh, be rebellious against Rome and had to put down a uh, an upstart who was trying to claim the emperorship and also had a whole bunch of, you know, I guess they would call them uh, the barbarian tribes in the north and the west to, oh, yeah. to quell, but he as emperor had a position of like he had to um as part of being the emperor to protect um the the people and so that was his job and even though he probably didn't super enjoy being on campaign for the majority of his emperorship you know when you could be in rome and just be pampered if you really wanted to yeah or just not be like you know sick and that wet and you know yeah. cold and all those sorts of things yeah i would rather be on the mediterranean than way up in north and like germany oh, yeah. and um and yeah they just like when you read this you know this is this is a, a man who even in his mid 50s seen a lot how to uh the, the weight of the world placed upon him is still trying to become a better person every day that's that's really quite interesting, isn't it? Um, there would be so many opportunities to just take it easy and justify that to yourself, and there'd be people like you know standing next to you who'd be like, "Yeah, man, take take a day off. Uh, you've earned it. You know, look at look at all the stuff that you've done so far." Um, it would really take a lot of drive to be able to persevere. Uh, and that, that is, you know, the Stoics, um, one of the key virtues is courage. And one of the parts of courage, it isn't just about facing fears. It's about persevering. It's about like making the right choice over and over and over again, even when it gets difficult and you're slogging along and, and you're tempted to give in and, and, uh, relax and he he didn't i mean i'm sure he did at some points right <laughs> but um way you know he's he's quite a model for us i think yeah it's a i guess a model of resilience and and face yeah of, like that's yeah unending challenges that's a really great term to use. Um, and that's also associated with stoicism, resilience. You know, we know that practicing stoicism does improve a person's resilience. It may not turn it into like super heroic levels, mm -hmm. but it advances us along so that we can be more able to do the things that are good for us and good for other people. Yeah, that's the whole uh, Epictetus talking about, come, I will teach you how to be invincible. What does that yeah. mean in the Stoic sense? It's Only not, the, not, not don't enter contests that you can't win, right? In part, right? Yeah. And hey, so switching topics, how did you get into reading the meditations? Because by the time that I knew you, you'd, you'd read it through a number of times. You were using it, you know, like I mentioned, as mm -hmm. as the key text for the uh, Stoic walk and talks. What got you into it, and what did you get out of the book? Um, let's see, I, I got into stoicism and, and started learning a little bit about it through a couple of like podcasts, like Matt Bannetta's Good Fortune podcast. Um, and, and that was like my gateway into actually starting to read the ancients and, and the meditations was just the first thing that I picked up. I, I happened to pick up the, uh, the Gregory Hayes version. Okay. Uh, maybe I had a, Which is uh, good. I finished 
Yeah, maybe I had an affinity yeah. with the name. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least his translation is – it flows very nicely. Not that it is the definitive translation, and there are many to choose from. And, uh, and I guess the only really definitive meditations is in the Greek. Yeah, and, and you know, the text, there's only a few manuscripts left uh, that are that are pretty – old you know we don't have any original of course um wouldn't, wouldn't that be a fine to have the oh. prototype copy of the meditations but how would we know that it was you know right um yeah you know i i have here uh with me the um the book that i got when i was in college and i think i picked this up at a used bookstore i think actually it was half price books mm-hmm. in in milwaukee so it's it's the the meditations um, that I had, and it's by <laughs> the names in this translated by the late ASL Farquhar son. Uh, and then with the introduction and notes by Rutherford. Um, so that, that's an older translation to be sure. And Hayes is way better than, than, than this one, but it's, um, you know, I, I, I picked it up and I, you know, I, I had no interest in stoicism at the time and I, I didn't really know much about stoicism as an undergraduate philosophy major, because the only thing they actually had us read was Epictetus's Enchiridion. And they told us stoicism doesn't really matter. Um, it was, you know, all Aristotle and Plato, and then everything went downhill from them in ancient philosophy, which is, which is a wrong headed take. And we can talk about that some other time. And I remember reading through it and I probably understood maybe a quarter of what I was reading as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it went on my shelf and it traveled around with me. And then as I got more into Stoicism through through reading Epictetus's discourses, um, I picked up the meditations and then suddenly things clicked. And I was like, oh yeah, that that's that's what he's talking about there. Because the, you know, um, Marcus is, you could say, traveling in the footsteps of Epictetus in, in many respects. Um I- I guess I w- would like to add, like I picked up this book, uh, or sorry, this particular copy, my uh, Gregory Hayes version, yeah, in in Austin, Texas, at uh, there's a little uh, independent bookstore there. I guess it's not particularly little. Do you want to plug like, them? Or I can't remember what it is anymore. Oh, I would, I would, but I bought two copies. Uh, oh, I bought this copy and I bought po- at the same I, time. Uh, I bought a different translation. Yeah, at the same okay. time, and I started reading it. I really liked it, and on my way out of Austin. I was going to grab a flight, and I stopped in at a restaurant. Um, had uh, I just sat at the bar, I struck up a conversation with the the barman, and um, by the end of the conversation, I had gifted him the other copy of my meditations. Nice. Um, and then and then for this, I, like I, I came home and uh, I spent. I, I was I wasn't working full time at that moment in time, and so I I just went to a coffee shop and I devoured this thing and because it just, it spoke to me in a, a, such a, like, yes, yes. Once it like over and over again, like that, it was like digging into my own mind and my own psyche. And like, yes, like I hadn't been able to articulate these things until I saw it in this particular form. And, you know, if you, if you can see it here, I just annotated it to the nines. Now, that's a that's a really great point about reading and and about important texts. You know, we 
I don't want to say that we read and we read just to find things that confirm our, our viewpoint because mm -hmm. some people do do that and, and that's not the best way to read. But there's, there is a different experience, the one that you just talked about, where you, you know, you've got some ideas and they're not quite worked out and you're not sure how they fit together and somebody else comes along and lays them out and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I was, what I was driving at. I just didn't have the, I didn't have the structure. I didn't have the vocabulary. I wasn't sure what I was trying to say, but this is somebody who actually knows what the hell they're talking about. And this is it. Right. Yeah. I've had that experience many times. Um, and it's kind of funny because we often think about philosophers are supposed to like, you know, not, not take anything for granted. Don't, don't buy into anybody else's stuff. But I think that that's a normal experience, this clicking with, with somebody and the book, you know, the book informing us and helping to structure our own thinking, our own living in ways that we're not able to pull off at the time. Yeah. I think I've only, only a couple of the times, like some of the existentialist texts have really like clicked. Like Interesting. That. Is I mean, we've talked about them quite a bit mm -hmm. uh, on the show. Is that why you keep coming back to certain key authors like uh, Jean Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and and uh, yeah, a few other they existentialists? Really speak to some of my really core values. Well, that makes sense. And there are interesting compatibilities that we uh, have explored in previous shows, including the last show, uh, between Stoicism and existentialism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that makes that, that does make a lot of sense. I, I do want to say just a few things about the Meditations as a book before we jump into our, our promised insights and, and practices. So, as Dan pointed out, there is no like best or definitive translation. There are some that are not quite as good, we can say. <laughs> um, and it is, you know, we, we call it the meditations. The Greek is ta eis heauton, literally things to oneself. And it is Marcus talking to himself. Um, and it's, it's divided into 12, you know, you can call them books. They were originally scrolls or chapters. Um, there isn't any particular thematic unity, except for the first book, which is all about, I'm grateful to this person, I'm grateful to this person. And I think that's kind of a cool way to start. And the manuscripts, um, you know, they mostly only existed in the East for a long time. It was written in Greek. Um, it kind of disappeared from the West and it was in the Byzantine Empire. And then as the, uh, the Ottoman Turks were destroying what was left of the Byzantine Empire, all these books started flowing west mm -hmm. and um eventually you know it, it they were lucky they got there when the printing press was in full swing and they uh, started printing copies of it so it didn't have quite the influence like on the the middle ages and the early renaissance um that say epictetus or seneca did epictetus you know the discourses were were lost and then found again for the west but they had the enchiridion seneca they had all his stuff the entire time um and so you know it becomes you know a representative stoic text but it, it was always kind of like you might say on the side and i think it's it's coming to its own more recently so um, maybe there's something to modern stoicism and this, this emphasis on, on, you know, using this as a, a central text. So th that's, uh, that's a good lead into, well, what do we actually get out of these texts? Um, 
you know, there's a lot of really cool insights. As mm-hmm. Dan has pointed out, there's a lot of practices like right there on the page. Um, one that I think is very characteristic of, of Marcus is the looking at things in a cosmic perspective and distancing ourselves. He, he suggests that we should take this perspective that locates us within space and time. And we can say, oh, yeah, well, I know exactly where I am. I'm right here and yeah. I'm right now. <laughs> but, but like putting it in, in context of all the other here's and now's that have been and are now gone. So he says at one point, the speed with which all of them vanish, the objects in the world and the memory of them in time. This is to suggest to us that, you know, maybe there's some things we don't have to take quite so seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, A little bit later, he says, some things are rushing into existence, others out of it, some of what now exists is already gone. Change and flux constantly remake the world just as the incessant progression of time remakes eternity. I I like that phrase, remaking eternity, eternity itself. We usually think of the eternal, totally unchanging, it's forever. Even the eternal for, for Marcus is in flux and changing. I wonder if that is based in the the Stoic physics of like the 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 constant destruction and recreation of the universe. Oh, right, the ekporosis, uh, yeah. right? Yeah, the, or the conflagration. I think you, you've got that, but you've also got this sense that I mean, it could be millions of years until the next cycle, mm-hmm. and. Everything is being eroded. Everything is being changed in in the process. Uh, He's got this other really great um, passage where he says, if you want to talk about people, you need to look down on the earth from above. Herds, armies, farms, weddings, divorces, births, deaths, noisy courtrooms, desert places, all the foreign peoples, holidays, days of mourning, market days, all mixed together, a harmony of opposites. Look at the past, empire succeeding empire, and from that, extrapolate the future, the same thing. No escape from the rhythm of events. And so the idea is, look how this vast variety of stuff, and now you're going to see the same stuff happen over and over again. Weddings are going to be happening throughout time. I mean, we might call them something different. You know, we're, we're in a very experimental time where we're like, you know, hey, everybody can get married uh, because, you know, everybody can have uh, just as uh, rough, uh, uh, you know, set of relationships as everybody else. And the divorce rate's like 50%. So <laughs> obviously marriages are not all that that enduring. But this, this uh, institution of people coming together and saying we're going to live a life together – it's probably going to exist throughout eternity and it's going to take on all these different little forms, you know, how we produce our food, you know, it may not be a farm. It might be something else, but it's going to, you know, there's going to be something going on. And this vast variety helps to contextualize the importance that we, we ascribed everything in, in our life, you know? Right. I, I like, you know, from, the text he kind of walks you through some of these practices and yeah, yeah. He, he he takes it slow and like first is like okay uh, look at at if you're having a conversation with another person step back and and what what do you two look like from you know the guy you know 100 feet away okay well you know now you're you're have this distance from the person and so uh, you might be if you're in the middle of the conversation, you might be heated and you, the your entire world is just yeah, yeah. you and him at that one moment in time. 
step back and you see this and then you step back again maybe from the the perspective of of a bird and now you're like kind of two small dots on the the, the grass you know a plane that you see and then you can continue this up and, and take this to okay well expand out and now you're at like the the level of the you know ISS or something and, and so you're looking down and you can't see any people anymore everyone's just it's just a, a blue brown uh blotches on a big blue orb yeah and uh and then you uh can then step again okay look look all the way back in time from the beginning of time to now how much time has passed how much does the moment here actually matter and then also continue that time on till the end of time and you can really put into perspective the how small this moment is and yeah. uh, kind of take a, the ability to step back and and fully comprehend yeah, they, there's a, uh, a name that modern Stoics give that. They call it the view from above where you like deliberately visualize um, going through that. And, and it really does help to produce um, perspective, I, I would say. There is a challenge that's kind of associated with this. Of So if you do that, right, you can say, oh, man, nothing I do matters at all because it's all just going to get you know swallowed up in this vast cosmos. So maybe I should just be a complete bastard and do anything I like or, you know, maybe nothing I do matters at all. But I, I don't think that's where Marcus wants us to go with that. I think he wants us to realize both the, you know, that we're we're a little point within a vast cosmos, but also that what we do um, and the choices that we make in the little tiny purview that we have do matter, you know? Right. So if I, if I do get heated, do I call my, um, I don't know, make it my, my uh, uh, sister, right? Do I call her a jerk or something like that? Or, you know, should this allow me to become less heated in the conversation? I think that's, that's the way to look at it. What do you think? It it reminds me strongly of the pale blue dot, and as the Voyager spacecraft was just about to turn off its camera, Carl Sagan said, "Turn turn it around and take one shot of us." And yeah. there's a, a a small I don't know poem or stanza. Uh, look again at that dot. They're here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of every human being who was ever was lived out their lives the aggregate of our joy and suffering thousands of competent religions ideologies and economic doctrine every hunter and forager every hero and coward every creator and destroyer of civilization every king and peasant every young couple in love every mother and father hopeful child inventor and explorer every teacher of morals every corrupt politician every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a great uh, passage for, again, you know, putting things in context. I, I would say a lot of stoicism as well as other intentional ways of, of living are, very oriented towards restoring a perspective that ought to be there, but often gets lost for us. Right. It does. It does. Yeah. Um, 
you know, one of the people that we we didn't talk about in this, but I, I think we could actually recommend his book, Pierre Adot. Mm-hmm. Um, he has this book, The Inner Citadel, on Marcus Aurelius that is, that is quite good. And, and, and it makes those connections that you were talking about between what Marcus is doing and the three disciplines um, very explicitly. Um, he talks about this cosmic significance and says that philosophy is a way of life. That's, that should be one of the vital dimensions, not just, not just doing practical things like figuring out how to not get angry or, you know, balance our checkbooks, but also like thinking about the, uh, the nature of the universe and where we fit into it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So well, let's, let's talk about practice. another. Yeah. yeah. Um, so deconstruction of things in yourself. Um, and so several times over the course of the uh, meditations, Marcus comes back to this idea of deconstructing things and try to figure out like why you have an affinity for them, both physical things as well as you know, your own mind and how you think about things and why you think certain things. So we can become blinded by things over time because we don't examine what they fully contain. Once yeah. one pulls back the cover and looks at what the thing is actually in each of its parts, uh, one has a fuller understanding of why things do what they do, and we gain new perspective. Uh, and so he, he he's talking about, at least uh, in the, the physical sense, of uh, deconstructing the food at a banquet and it's like okay i like this it's like this is really tasty i'm having a great time but he's like okay let's, let's take a step back why do i like this you know if i really look at these things i, I see um uh seething uh like seeing roasted meat and other dishes in front of you and you sh- suddenly realize this is a dead fish or a dead bird or a dead pig or this noble vintage is just grape juice and the purple robes are sheep wool dyed and uh, shellfish blood, you know, to get those purples. Um, And uh, our... Like, this is one of the reasons why, like, I I very much enjoy coffee. I drink it uh, most every morning, but I've been uh, recently referring to it, especially in my stoke group as we are talking in the morning. It's like, oh, yes, my uh, my hot bean juice. Yeah. (laughs) Because I've got to deconstruct that. Yeah, it's interesting. If we don't have... Um, if we're only looking at like one aspect of a thing, it's very easy for us to not only be attracted to it, but take way too much of it and, and, um, value it too much in relation to other things. And, and we live in a world where most people actually don't have much idea where their food is coming from. And we also live in a world where the food has been doctored and changed so much to look in certain ways. I mean, think about oranges, for example, right? You know, they have, they all have that orange color because they're dyed orange. <laughs> you know, they, they bleach them and then they dye them, you know? Um, I mean, they still have the nice orangey smell, but, um, and we could go on and on and on with things that the food industry does to try to make things more and more attractive to us. You know, here's a, here's another great example. If you want to drink less soda, in the day because drinking soda isn't good for you call it what it is liquid candy because that's oh, all yeah. that's all soda is carbonated candy it's like 40 percent <laughs> so, sugar yeah <laughs> uh yeah the yeah. another thing that reminds me of this is um dinosaur shaped uh chicken nuggets it's like how totally removed mm. from the reality of the situation is that um, so he also yeah, that, then continues on this true. with uh, 
like the things that are actually in our own mind. And so, um, why are we distressed by things? We need to like kind of deconstruct. Okay, I have an emotion, and emotion emerges, arises. Why yeah. am I feeling that? Instead of just going like, well, now I'm angry or now I'm sad or whatever. You go know, like, what what in this thing actually is causing me? these things and is that a, a rational thing for me to be giving into and so he talks um if you are distressed by anything external the pain is not due to the thing itself but to your estimate of it and this you have the power to revoke at any moment and so someone someone cuts you off or someone insults you it, like if yeah. someone insulted a rock the rock <laughs> wouldn't have a problem with it it's only you thinking that you have some like reputation or like that doesn't uh, equate with the idea that you have within your own mind that you now have a problem with it and you are upset because it doesn't fit in with the, the world that you see. Yeah. Now, what if somebody objected and they're like, this is going to take all the mystery and fun out of life. All you people just want to deconstruct everything and tear everything apart. Um, what do you, I mean, I think Marcus could have a response to that. What do you think it would be? Um, I, I would make my guess that uh, in order to actually do what is good, which is virtue, yeah. and to the actions that are actually have that quality of virtue, uh, you need to know what things actually are in order to act towards them in the correct manner. So in order to be wise, in order to be just, yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that you could say, listen, when you do unpack these things, you're not taking away beauty. You're not taking away mystery because you go a level down and it's still pretty mysterious. Mm -hmm. you know. So like, you know, I, I went through computer science in, in college and and I know actually how computers work down to like, you know, individual yeah. transistors um, and, and like they're not magical anymore, but I love them more so by knowing all that detail and, and that allows me to do so much more now that I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. That's a great example because uh, computer science is so analytically based. Um, I mean, you're literally. At, at the very bottom level, a whole bunch of switches, right? Right. You know, it's, it's just a whole bunch of uh, logic gates and, and yeah. everything builds up from there and or not. Yep. Well, let's, let's talk about another one that's, that's kind of related to this. So making use of bad things or bad experiences, um, Marcus suggests that we can reframe things. And actually Epictetus says something very similar that we can take, we, we can turn everything to our advantage. So Marcus says, it's unfortunate that this has happened. No, it's fortunate that this has happened. And I've remained unharmed by it, not shattered by the present or frightened of the future. It could have happened to anyone, but not everyone could have remained unharmed by it. Why treat the one as a misfortune rather than the other as fortunate? Can you really call something a misfortune that doesn't violate human nature? So he's talking about like maybe getting insulted or cut off in traffic or something like that. We don't have to take that as a calamity. We can actually say, well, this is an opportunity for me to uh, use virtue. And so he says, does what happened keep you from acting with justice, generosity? 
generosity, self-control, sanity, prudence, honesty, humility, straightforwardness, and all the other qualities that allow a person's nature to fulfill itself. And so we can, we can say this about, you know, really anything. You lost a job, uh, you know, a client flaked out on you, um, you know, you go out on a date and the date doesn't go well. We could go down, you know, the line. Mm-hmm. You get sick. Um, everything can be turned into an occasion to, instead of moaning and saying, oh, this is awful, to, to do something <laughs> good, right? Yeah, but like, it take it. Go ahead. It's, it's, kind of distilled down to this like little at hand idea um of misfortune born nobly is good fortune that you can yeah. turn any thing that would be seen by you know an outsider as you know oh no like this this thing has befallen me but no i'm the only one that is in control of my actions and within stoicism virtue is the only good and my actions yeah. are the way that i'm expressing my virtue and those things are outside of me they're they're not neither good nor bad i'm the only one that's controlling these good or bad things and so every time that i have a challenge it is another uh, chance for me to do the good i think it's very liberating to realize that we we do in fact have a choice in these matters you know cuz so many people get into situations that are like, oh, things have to go this way. And, and this has to, you know, this must mean this. And it's, it's like there's a logic to it, but it's a logic that's almost like, you know, they don't realize it's a loosey-goosey logic, right? If it's the sort of thing like if you shook it, some of the parts would fall out. They think it's all like totally rigid. And things like this suggest, or passages like this suggest to us that, no, no, it's not, it's not that rigid at all. This also reminds me of another uh, phrase from Marcus that comes up, you know, the the obstacle, right? Yeah, the obstacle's uh, way. Exactly. So the obstacle presents itself to us and now we can we can respond to it. And if we didn't have the obstacle, you know, the, the other Stoics say stuff like this as well. If we don't have things that are challenges to us, we're not going to be able to grow. We're not going to be able to be courageous or show other... Um, show other aspects of, of, of virtue like justice or, or prudence. And, and so, this doesn't say to go directly into the deep end. No. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're practicing, you don't you go like, well, I'm going to go and like uh, become a complete, complete ascetic and go live in the wilderness or something because that's the obstacle and I'm going to overcome it. Yeah, yeah. Like, Take baby That'd steps. Be foolish. Gonna, yeah, right. Well, we're almost at the end of our, our time, so we're going to let Dan lead you out with something quite apt here yes well i'm going to leave you the words of marcus Aurelius: the things ordained to you teach yourself to be at one with those and the people who share them with you treat them with love with real love